Welcome to Excess Returns, where we focus on what works over the long term in the markets. Join us as we talk about the strategies and tactics that can help you become a better long-term investor. Justin Carboneau and Jack Forehand are principals at Validia Capital Management. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Validia Capital. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of clients of Validia Capital. Hi guys, this is Justin. In this episode of Excess Returns, Jack and I take the time to chat with Kevin Zalugal, a former programmer at both Google and Microsoft with a PhD in computer science from MIT. Kevin now teaches computer science at the University of Washington, and he collaborates with the quantitative investing firm O'Shaughnessy Asset Management in its external research partner program. We talk to Kevin about machine learning and the different types of techniques, like decision stumps and clustering, that can be used to try and find predictive patterns and value in large sets of data. Kevin walks through his methods for selecting NFL receivers and running backs and fantasy football using machine learning, and we talk about how these concepts may be able to be applied to the markets and investment strategies. We really just scratched the surface of machine learning with Kevin, but I think you'll find the discussion a good one. Thanks for listening. Please enjoy this discussion on machine learning with Kevin Zaluko. Hi, Kevin. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. We wanted to talk to you about the area um, of expertise that you're in, which is um, machine learning. Um, but before we kind of get into some of this, it's you know many of the people that watch this podcast are individual investors, retail investors, or financial advisors, and they're not necessarily you know, knowledgeable around the concept of machine learning. So I think to start, we just wanted to sort of ask you if you could kind of at, you know, a high level help us understand and sort of define what machine learning actually is. Sure. So, you know, I think uh, like a lot of areas, there's uh, you can define them very broadly, I guess, maybe more specifically. Um, people who work in the field, I'm sure, have broad designs on on what uh, the, the enormous set of problems you want to solve uh, with machine learning. And I think in the broadest sense, the broadest definition I've heard is um, just the idea that, you know, machine learning is is using data to try to make, uh, you know, programs that improve themselves over time by looking at, at data. And so that's very broad and could affect uh, almost anything um, that we, any kind of program we create. But uh, in practice, we tend to use machine learning for a, sort of a smaller set uh, of things, or it's got a lot of traction for specific things. One is just for making predictions from from data. Um, you know, the uh, another is trying to analyze data, trying to sort of discover the structure uh, of data. And then, uh, I guess the last case would be just uh, cases of trying to trying to use the computers to um, to solve problems for us by again by by, by looking at data um, and incorporating that data um, to solve those problems. I'm not sure that's uh, it's maybe easier to, to discuss the specifics, I guess, than. The, than the broad picture, because as I said, it's it's uh, it's it could mean it can it, you know it's a really wide area. It can include any kind of problem you want to throw in there. Yeah, fair enough. I think that's it's so vast that you could probably you know go a lot of different directions with it. But let's maybe get a little bit more specific then. So, what are the different types of machine learning? So, in prepping for this, you know, we I'm sure there's more than this, but we wanted to see if you could maybe um, define what supervised machine learning is, unsupervised, and then also reinforcement learning. If you could just talk to those three types of machine learning techniques and, and I guess how they're different and maybe an example of how they might be used. Sure. So yeah, these are kind of the three I was kind of hinting at, I guess, in my, my prior answer there. Um, you know, supervised learning is the most common type of learning. And um, in that case, uh, the way that works is that, you know, you hand a bunch of data to to the the the, uh, the software, 
um, and you give it a bunch of examples along with some kind of labels that say you know what those examples are and you ask it to figure out from those examples um, you know how to predict what the labels would be so if you give it a new example that's unlabeled can it guess what the label is, is going to be on that one so that's supervised learning um, you know my colleague at the, the University of Washington Pedro Domingos likes to say that you know traditional program consumes input and produces output and in machine learning you consume inputs and outputs and you produce a program that can then you know replicate that behavior of inputs to outputs so that's kind of the, the supervised learning case. Um, and the unsupervised learning case, you're just given examples without any labels. And the idea here is just to try to discover kind of some kind of structure. Um, you know, what's, uh, or you know, find ways of looking at it that make it maybe easier to understand, or find structure that you can then use for something else. You know, a simple example in, of this would be um, a clustering. So you look at a bunch of examples, can, you can, it, can the machine figure out that, you know, there's really 10 different groups here, and these ones are all kind of similar and those ones are all kind of similar and so on and that could be useful for you for whatever whatever problem you're looking at maybe you're going to treat those different clusters differently uh, when you when you work with those examples uh, reinforcement learning uh, is yet another kind as i said and you know these aren't exhaustive they, they it's a broad area you can go on and on with with problems in, in reinforcement learning instead of having um uh trying to make up trying to predict a label what you ask the machine to do is is take an action so it picks it picks an action and then based on uh, the actions that it picks, it gets rewards. And so the goal is to is for it to figure out how to get the highest rewards over time. But the, the idea is that the rewards that come later you know, are path dependent based on past decisions that you made. So a simple example here is if you want to figure out how to play a game, the first time you play it, you know, it can choose to move the joystick left and right or push this button, let's say. And then eventually it gets a reward that says you won or you lost. And it needs to figure out, you know, work backwards uh, and figure out, okay, what are the actions that I took that led me to this losing state. And over time, it, it figures out, you know, I know from the past examples that doing that loses, so let's not do that. And it keeps working its way until it builds up uh, an understanding of the game that it can use to, to choose the actions that are most likely to lead to rewards. So that's the reinforcement learning would include, you know, uh, chess playing and video games and Go and things like that. So with, with unsupervised learning, if I was, for instance, giving feeding financial data to a model, would I, I wouldn't even tell it it's financial data. I would just give it a huge amount of data and it would start to tell me, you know, the relationships or the clusters that that data falls into. Is that right? Yes. Um, let me say, I should, I'm probably going to have to say this more than one time. Nothing is ever as easy uh, as, as that. But, uh, you know, when you, you can, in, in principle, that's the goal, right? You just give it the data and it tells you the clusters. In reality, uh, you have to tell it, you know, how do you decide how similar things are? And so with some of the algorithms, you have to tell them how many clusters to look for. Um, and it may be you'll try different sizes and sort of see on your own what, what seems to work best. But, um, but yes, in an ideal world, you, you just give it the data and then it would tell you, hey, here's, here's, the best, here's the best way to look at it. Here's the underlying structure that seems most significant. Okay. Before we get into, we're going to talk about some of the papers you wrote for O'Shaughnessy um, that relate this to football and to investing, and it makes the concepts much easier to understand. But before we do that, I just wanted to take some of the terms we constantly see in the media related to machine learning and maybe throw them out at you and just see if you could help us just give us a very high level definition of what they mean. Um, the first one is deep learning. Okay, so uh, deep learning is, uh, it can be used in different senses. I mean, sometimes it means, um, well, okay, I guess, I guess we need to define another, another term here. So um, when you're doing supervised learning, uh, usually we talk about the machine, um, you know, it's, it's being asked to build, to make predictions, right? So it sees these examples, you give it examples that have labels, and then, it, and then it's gonna uh, later get examples and has to predict the label. Usually these work by, it builds up some kind of a model. Um, so it's some kind of a representation 
that it uses to understand the data. And then when it sees a new one, it can use this model to make a, to make a prediction. And so um, deep learning usually refers to models that, uh, that have a lot of depth. It sort of comes from, I think, specifically from this neural network um, uh, type models, where in that, uh, uh, with those particular kinds of models, they have a very natural sense of width versus depth. I mean, again, there's no reason this is gonna make any sense off the top of your head, but just those kinds of models, it makes sense to look at them that way. And it turned out in that setting that making them deeper was a lot harder than making them wider. And so um, people initially, when they did these, tended to go for wide models, uh, not deep models. And then only recently, with the, the computational power we have available now, could you really train these deeper ones. Also some, also some insights, it wasn't just that, it was some, some clever algorithmic insights as well, uh, led to being able to trade ones that are deeper. But in general, I think um, outside of the neural network context, it probably just, people might use the term just to mean uh, just sort of more sophisticated, more sophisticated models um, that have, uh, you know, uh, in, in principle can encode much more complicated models of the world. Okay. And another term we're seeing a lot in investing right now is this whole concept of natural language processing. Um, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what that is. So natural language processing is more of a, a problem area than, uh, let's say, a, a machine learning algorithm. Um, you know, it just means, you know, problems that you would solve where the inputs tend to be natural language. So, you know, a classic example is tra language translation. You know, is, that's sort of the benchmark in natural language processing is translating English to French or, or what have you. And so uh, natural language processing is just problems that where you're, you're taking inputs that are natural language. Um, and any, any kind of problem you have in that, in that setting. And then you can apply all the different machine learning techniques to, to those kinds of problems. Um, and, then, and the last one is uh, random forest. Sure. So a random forest is, is one example of a model. So um, uh, as I said, different machine learning methods, they build up representations um, that try to, try to represent the, the, data, the example that they've been given so that then they can use that to make predictions. And different kinds of models, um, different algorithms build different kinds of models. And they're sort of good at seeing certain kinds of patterns, but not others. I guess maybe that's the way to think about it. So, um, you know, if you're using a random forest, um, that's, that's a particular model where um, the, what it looks for is it looks for um, uh, decisions where it looks at particular features. We call, we call them features of the example. So an example, um, uh, let's say an example is a stock. It's going to have a bunch of data associated with it, right? Um, you know, the sector that it's in, last year's earnings, last year's revenue, et cetera, you know, 12-month returns. All these things, we, we typically call them features. And the whole stock might be an example, but it has lots of different features in it. And so uh, a, a random forest is going to operate, um, well, it's, it's a, a random forest is a collection of trees. That's why it's called a forest. And each tree is going to operate by looking at, at features one at a time uh, and sort of uh, working through this decision tree. I guess pe people see those in the business world as well, right? The decision trees. Um, you look at one feature and then, you know, if it's larger than this or smaller than that, then, then you know, you sort of go to one side of the tree. So you sort of navigate your way down looking at individual features and then eventually you end up in a bucket where it makes a particular prediction. It says, okay, since I saw that uh, the company's last, uh, you know, grew earnings a lot last year and its PE is very low, I'm going to predict uh, this is going to be a big winner, you know, over the next 12 months or something like that. And then a random forest is just a way of combining many, many trees um, together. And so it takes, each tree gets a vote. And then if you're trying to vote, let's say yes, no, if you're trying to solve a, a problem where labels are yes, no, each tree gets a vote. And then if you get more yes votes than the no votes, then it would predict. That's not quite right because you, you, uh, some of the trees get more votes than others, but in any case, that's, that's sort of the basic idea. Kevin, you uh, participated in O'Shaughnessy uh, Asset Management's research partner program. I see you have the, uh, 
the vest or the jacket on as the reward there. <laughs> you remembered you were coming on the Validia uh, Excess Return podcast, right? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right, just making sure. Well, I, feel, I, wanted to pre- I wanted to pretend like I'm a professional, so I'm wearing a, a vest. Fi- finance bro vest, I guess. <laughs> um, yeah, there you go. I like it. I like it. Um, <laughs> um, in the first paper that you actually wrote for them, um, you used a example of how um, you were predicting the success of college wide receivers in the NFL based on their success in college and also some of the physical attributes they had. And I think you used decision stumps um, in that paper. I was just wondering, and we were talking before we started about how maybe it would have been good if you would have went back and read your own papers, but hopefully you can comment on this one. Um, um, Can you just talk at a high level how, you know, what that process was, that machine learning process, you know, that you utilized and how it actually produce better outcomes than just a simple or standard linear regression model? Right. So I guess one thing I should say just about the papers in general is, you know, they're, they're intended to be uh, for learning. So I, I you know, uh, I, I'm picking examples where I can demonstrate the technique that I want to talk about. So um, in general, the, um, the sequence of papers, and I have a third one that's still in the works here, are trying to, I picked machine learning techniques that I want to explain because I think they'd be sort of useful first steps for someone who, who, um, you know, doesn't, hasn't done machine learning before. Like these are good ones to start. And so then I'm searching for problems where they, where they work, (laughs) you know, um, not every, not every machine learning techniques works best in every given problem. So, um, so the, yeah, the idea there, I was trying to describe decision, uh, uh, decision stumps and then these random forests of decision stumps, um, mainly because it's similar, so similar to, um, uh, linear regression. It sort of a, feels like an, uh, a very natural step away from linear regression. Um, and you can sort of very obviously see the improvements you get by doing that. Um, and so, um, and so the, uh, yeah, I think I used an example of looking at wide receivers. Um, they have, um, uh, the, you know, it's very high dimensional data. You have all kinds of things you can look at with uh, wide receivers. And actually, I guess I started out by prefacing this by saying that I picked it because it's a good example of you know, demonstrating the technique, but actually people do use uh, decision trees and random forests to predict, you know, other people other than myself have had success doing this. It's a, uh, does seem to be a technique that's well suited, well suited to that. Um, and it kind of models how some people actually, um, you know, choose players, uh, you know, NFL GMs. If you read, um, if you grab Bill Walsh or something, he'll tell you, you know, a defensive end has to be at least this tall and no more than that tall. And they have to be at least this fast and their weight has to be at least this and so on. So, uh, you know, people really do think this way and that's often a good hint that maybe that technique might, might work well. Um, so your, uh, uh, so the question was, you would like me to des- describe stumps, is that right? And then, um, uh, yeah. And I guess in, in terms of, it, I, I think the, they were more predictive than your standard linear regression in this type of, that's right. Okay. Yes. So um, a decision stump is just a very, very simple kind of decision tree where you only have one layer. So you just look at one thing and you compare it to a value and then it's either above or below that value. So you, you know, you'd have a decision stump that says, did they run, you know, did this wide receiver run faster than a 4.5 40 yard dash? And it's either yes or no. Um, And so a decision, decision tree can have multiple questions that you ask one after another, but a decision stump is just one. It's just this very short tree. That's why that's why it's called a stump. It's just, just the one question, right? So it just looks at one thing. 
Um, and this looks, you know, uh, you know, if you just did that, if you just picked players by saying, I'm only going to, I'm going to draft every player that ran faster than a four or five, you know, that would not, uh, be a good way to do it, do things, right? You'd not be very, you get fired quickly, uh, very quickly, I think. Um, but what you, what you do is that you combine many of these stumps and each stump is looking at a different feature. Um, and then, uh, you're weighing all their votes together. And so the, the random forest, uh, building algorithm does this in a smart way where, you know, the very first time you build a stump, it's looking for the one feature that's sort of most predictive. But after you've picked uh, one stump, what it's going to do is it's going to look at where is that stump making mistakes, and it's going to try to find another stump that tries to fix the mistakes, that does the best job of fixing the mistakes of the prior stump. And then it's going to combine those two together. Now there's they have two votes, and it's going to look at where that's making mistakes, and then find another stump that tries to fix best fix the mistakes of those two together, and then then you've got a, a forest with three, and then you look at its mistakes and so on. And so it's constantly adjusting, adding in new stumps, and then adjusting the weights on them to try to make the collective group decision uh, as accurate uh, as it can be. So that's the, that part is generic to, to random forests in general. So the reason that I used it um, uh, as a comparison for linear models is that when you do this process, let's say let's take something like the 40-yard dash. It might, it might be the first stump that comes in and says only draft players that have above a four, uh, you know, a four or five or faster. But then later on, you can, you know, you don't just get one choice for, for a given feature. The, uh, you know, the, the fifth stump that shows up might also look at 40 yard dash. It might say, uh, okay, we can correct our mistakes by the, of the model so far by giving it another boost to those that run faster than a four, four. Um, so, you know, you get one vote from being above a four five or faster than a four five, and then you get another, a second vote for being faster than a 4-4. So those really fast players then get two votes and they get upvoted a little more. And then you might later on discover, you might throw one in that says, actually, if you have a run faster than a 4-2, that's bad. I'm going to vote no on you if you if you vote. And so the, one of the, the, the sort of key reason that I wanted to explain this method right away is that if you imagine this curve of, once you look at the whole model with, let's say, 100 trees in it, and you just look at all the stumps that have votes based on the 40-yard dash time, you can sort of plot a picture that shows how many votes you get based on your 40-yard draft time. And as we were describing it, you know, as you get faster, you know, you go from above a 4-5, you're getting a vote, and then above a 4-4, a you're getting another vote, and then you go 4-2, and it, you lose a vote. So you can have this relationship that is not linear um, in a variable. Whereas if you train a linear model, it's going to say how much, you know, is, four, is your 40-yard is your dash time. You get a coefficient, and it's either positive or negative, so you either want it to be faster or slower. And the you know the more fast you are the better or the the slower you are the better and these kinds of models they can they can give you these nonlinear effects where you know it could go up for a bit but then they don't want it to be too high or something like that and so that's the that's the reason why I picked the example of sort of showing you these nonlinear features um, and uh, and how machine learning can sort of you know move you outside of this world of linear models and in principle capture effects that are just are not well ca you know captured by a linear model. So is the idea in general, so this works better when there's sort of stair steps as opposed to, you know, assuming it's a straight line. So for instance, I would assume there's a 40-yard dash time where you just can't be an NFL receiver anymore. Yeah. So once it gets beyond six or something, you know, it probably doesn't matter if it's six or eight or 12 or whatever it is, you know, you, you just can't be an NFL receiver anymore. So this handles that type of situation better than, a, than sort of a linear model. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's right. You can, you can treat a bunch and say these are all the same. And in, in general, it doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to be a line. But the one thing is that it could be a line. If you give it a lots, lots of data and you train a stump and it really is a linear relationship, 
it, if you zoom in, it'll be jaggedy, but if you zoom out, it'll just look like a line. It's just a, a line that's going up, 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 because it keeps adding in more stumps to try to describe this relationship. So it, it will discover linear patterns, but it's just, it's not limited to them. Yeah, so I wanted to ask you about, um, you know, one of the things we do when we, when we run tests with, with an investing is we want to have sort of an out of sample data set. And so the first thing we do is, you know, we, we run our test on a certain portion, portion of data and we reserve back another set to say, you know, does this work outside of the data that I'm building the model on? And I noticed when looking at machine learning, there's sort of, sort of a similar concept where you have training sets and you have testing sets and you have validation sets. And I was wondering if you could talk about what those three things are and sort of how they relate to using machine learning. Uh, right, so that's that's really one of the key ideas of machine learning. So uh, it's you know kudos to you for doing that in your own process. I know you said you don't use a lot of machine learning, but you do use that that really that's really the essence of of machine learning. I think um, when I look at um, a lot of the academic literature uh, where they do use say linear regression, you know, is is a typical approach, right, in academic literature. Um, you know, um, it's the thing that's odd about it is that. When I took machine learning, you know, 20 years ago at uh, at MIT, our first two weeks were on linear regression. So, linear regression is a machine learning technique, um, but there's this the, there's this key difference, which is the part you just highlighted. You don't in the um, in the social science literature, you know, the way you decide whether um, a model is a good fit, you might look at its R squared, or you're looking at T sats, you know, so which are related. Um, and those are measures of basically how well does the model uh, fit the data that you showed it, right? And in machine learning, that's never the metric that you use. Instead, the metric that's used is, is what you described. You, you, you train your model, you give it the examples from, uh, to, to, for it to choose its model, but you evaluate the model on data that it's never seen before. And that's critical because as the models get more complicated, I mean, you, you can kind of get away with it in linear models, although... I guess whether that's true in finance or not is kind of an open question because there's lots of articles that get published and then the out of sample future data doesn't fit the model. So it's questions of whether the same thing is happening there. Uh, but certainly in machine learning, this is, you know, introductory chapter material. You, you have to test it on data that you didn't train the model on because it can fit that. It can, uh, we call it overfitting the examples that it's given. It can, it can get so good at predicting the, the, the details of those models. It's actually worse when you give it new data than it would have been if you hadn't trained it uh, quite as much. Um, so that mindset shift is really the key, the, the, really the key there, I think more than anything, is just switch to, to having, you build the model with your training data and then you test it on new data. Now you mentioned validation data sets. So sometimes people will have three data sets, uh, three, three different parts, train, test, and validation. And uh, that has to do with, um, uh, you know, it's kind of a technical thing, I guess, but oftentimes, um, you know, you, you have a you have your model, and uh, that the 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 algorithm machine learning algorithm is coming up with this model that tries to you know figure out what the tries to represent what it's learning from from the data, and we call the 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 machine learning algorithm is you know that model has a bunch of numbers in it, and the machine learning algorithm is trying to find the numbers that make it make the best predictions from the from the data you gave it. So we call that fitting fitting the model, fitting the parameters of the model. But oftentimes there are other parameters of the model that the machine learning algorithm doesn't fit itself. Uh, it's actually a human being who picks them, their values. Uh, you know, it could be, for example. Um, so one example is um, uh, clustering. I know we, we chatted about this beforehand. Uh, you know, something like clustering, how many clusters do you have is a question that oftentimes the human being decides. And so those are in some sense parameters of the model, but they're not being fit by 
machine learning algorithm. And so uh, what people will sometimes do is they'll have this validation set. They'll, they'll, they'll have three different sets so that you can use your um, the out-of-sample test data to make sure that your model is training the right amount. It's not overfitting the to the training examples. And then you can apply that same approach to the the, the parameters that are that it doesn't fit, the, the extra parameters that humans set, we call them hyperparameters. You can do the same approach to the hyperparameters with your validation set. So you know, let's say you choose ahead of time, you know, you're gonna have eight clusters or whatever, and then uh, you do this example, you do your out of test, uh, out of uh, uh, out of sample data for testing the model, and then uh, and then later you take your uh, that whole process and you compare you you check that and even uh, uh, sorry so you, you might do that and then uh, you might try a few different values of the number of subclusters and then look at what happens to the test data as you use six clusters seven clusters eight clusters but now you've sort of incorporated a bit of the through this feedback loop you've you sort of allowed some test data information to creep into what you're doing so you need an even more out of sample data this validation set to go and and do the final check to see that it, it's really working. Does that make sense? Yes, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, so you're sort of refining your model, and then after you refine your model, you want to have another set of data to say, like, let's make sure it works again on this third model. That's on this right. This third set yes. of data. Sorry. Yeah, and I think I think it seems like how this happens with a lot of financial data is that you know, the one good thing is that we have the future data is kept from us by you know the lack of time travel, and so we have this the only out of sample data we have that you know nobody has looked at is future data. So you publish your paper, and then we get this out of sample test. And sadly, you discover a bunch of these things, you know, don't work anymore. Maybe because they were overfitting, or maybe because they instantly got arbitraged away, or, or whatever it is. Yeah, we just had uh, John Montgomery, who's the founder of Bridgeway, on the podcast that's going to air next week. And one of the things he said is the only true out of sample is the future. Um, and so that that probably is true um, in some ways. You can do this as, be as best you can, but you know, obviously, we can't completely predict the future no matter what we do. In your second paper with O'Shaughnessy, you actually looked at building a machine learning model to predict running back performance. Um, and you actually found that in that case, you know, a different approach worked better than what you did in the first paper. So you put running backs into these clusters as you were just talking about clusters. So could you kind of just, I mean, maybe talk about how running backs are different than wide receivers and there's a lot of differences, but how that really necessitates using like a different type of model like clusters versus decision stumps on the wide receivers. Right, so again, like I said, uh, you know, these are all intended to be um, useful explainer pieces, so they're not necessarily exactly, if you ask me, you know, what am I actually using to make my predictions in the NFL, they don't always exactly match what's in the papers. I should just warn, warn you on that. I'm picking the examples to be, to explain the concepts. But this, this case, actually, I do actually, this is the one case where I talked about something that I actually do use, and that was this clustering idea. So, um, uh, so I, the models I use personally to pick uh, players um, uh, are, are use a different technique, uh, one that I've been planning to talk about in the, the third paper. Um, and um, and uh, for that one, I have a model for running backs and I have a model for wide receivers. And the wide receiver model is really, really good. And it has a strong track record out of sample. It's, you know, it works so well, I've really just never had a reason to go back and revisit. I just keep keep winning my leagues and you know it's just I don't know there's nothing nothing to do I just so I feel good about that but my running back model has not been good uh, not been as good and um, and so I did end up fixing it with exactly the technique that I described and so the the issue was that um, so there was this is kind of an example where even though I'm you know asking the machine to solve problems for me um, 
really a lot of the intuition came comes from you know human beings. So in this case, what I was looking at was that it you know, intuitively didn't make sense that you want to evaluate all running backs the same because they use differently in actual games. And so you know you can have a running back who weighs 240 pounds, you know, say Derrick Henry or something. If, if you're a football fan, I mean, he's a monster of a man, right? He's six foot two or something and 250. He's huge. And then you've got these, uh, you know, I'll pick another guy, my, uh, my favorite running back, uh, Miles Gaskin at the um, Miami Dolphins, who weighs, you know, two, 205 or something. It's 5'10". Um, maybe he's less than that. He's 180. So he's a little guy. And it just doesn't make sense that, you know, they're, they're not going to be used the same way in the in the actual uh, league. And so it, it's, 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 it, it, this, there's this intuition that it doesn't make sense to, to evaluate them the same way. Um, and so uh, what I did was a, a clustering technique. So this was an example of, of um, um, uh, unstructured, uh, excuse me, of, of um, uh, rather than supervised learning, excuse me, unsupervised learning. So, um, so what I did is I asked it to cluster the running backs into different groups. And, it, it, uh, and then for each group, I would then build a model to make predictions. And th then I did the thing we were just talking about where you look at how many clusters you know, as you add more clusters and then build a model for each one of those clusters, you use your, you, you know, you see on the test set, uh, you know, are you getting more gain from having more clusters or not? And, and in that case, it turned out basically all the gain came at three clusters. And we get beyond that actually it gets worse because now you're starting to, I mean, ultimately you could put every, if you, there, there aren't that many running backs that have ever been drafted, it's less than a thousand. So, you know, if you did a thousand clusters, you'd put every running back in their own cluster and you'd perfectly predict the data you were given, and it would probably be totally worthless outside um, uh, on, on new examples. So you, you, you often see that as you increase the complexity of the model, it gets better up to a point, and then it gets worse. That's what you see in the test data. So then you can pick somewhere near, somewhere around the top is about the best, best place to use. So here, three clusters worked well. And so um, I ended up calling those clusters, just me as a human being, looking at those clusters. I mean, the machine doesn't know what the clusters are, but um, I sort of described them as, um, uh, actually, you, you guys may remember better from the paper, but there were heavier running backs, um, you know, sort of big bruising running backs. Um, there were third down running backs who were lighter and, um, and caught a lot of passes in college. And then there was this other group, which I kind of called, uh, I don't know, I think, you know, sort of lighter weight, shifty running backs, where they they weren't quite used that they, they didn't they weren't in either of those two groups, um, and so the the, for, the two groups I said first are the big you know the first and second down running backs who are are you know going to run the ball you know up the middle and you want them to be heavy, um, and then the third down backs you want to be lighter. Those are sort of the nat and have caught a lot of passes. Those are kind of the natural groups, and this third group was kind of the weird one. And um, what I pointed out in the piece is that. Um, uh, this third group actually, as weird as it was, was really solving a real problem for me. So um, I, I um, as I said, I wasn't happy with my running back model. It, it was not as good as my other model. And um, in particular, one problem it had is my running back model did not like Alvin Kamara, who was uh, the best running back in the league a few years ago, I think offensive rookie of the year. And in principle, it's just one miss, but like it hurts worse than the rest just as a human being. So it felt really bad that you know, the rookie of the year, my model said he wasn't good. Uh, and so in this clustering, Alvin Kamara comes up in this third group. And so, um, you know, sort of hints that like, that, that there was, it was capturing something, you know, that I wanted to, it to actually get, and it, it seemed to have found that. So uh, this third group, it looked for different things. It looked for, you know, different size speed combinations and, and so on. 
Um, and interestingly, it wasn't looking for pass catchers, but it was looking for, like I said, sort of shift gear runners. It liked their three cone to be better and so on. And uh, that group, uh, I've gotten some nice wins out of that group um, in, in, uh, in recent years. I can't remember off the top of my head if uh, Antonio Gibson last year's sort of surprise running back was in that group or not, but the combined model really liked Antonio Gibson. And so I'm feeling much better about my model when it, when it gets the big winners right. <laughs> so, so the idea here is once you've, once you've developed the clusters, then you're using a similar process to what you use for the wide receivers for each individual cluster. Is that sort of the idea? Yes. And, um, that, that's exactly right. And then, um, but it's, but the models are, they're picking different features to focus on in the three different cases. So you're, they're three totally different, uh, totally different models. Um, and then what I did was I, I had this, the reason I needed a validation data set because I tried different numbers of clusters and then I needed to see, you know, I used the test set to figure out which, what's the right number of clusters. Um, and so now the test set has sort of been, you know, used up by this process, by me looking at it and, and choosing the cluster number to give me the best performance on the test set. I needed a validation data set to check that, uh, to, to really be out of sample from everything else. That makes sense. When I did, uh, I haven't done fantasy football in a long time, but when I used to do it, uh, quarterbacks were really, really important. And I'm just, I'm just curious, how well can you model quarterbacks? Um, or are they as, as easy to model as, say, wide receivers, or are they very, very difficult to model? So um, I've, the short answer is I've never tried, um, but I suspect, based on sort of other uh, you know, colleagues' attempts, I suspect it's quite difficult. Uh, it seems to be difficult. And also you can just see from the NFL's lack of success at predicting, um, you know, these players, it's, it seems to be really tricky. Um, you know, we have this, I don't know if you guys are paying attention to football at the moment, but, but, uh, you remember a few years ago, um, the Browns passed on, um, what was it? Uh, you know, they, they had the opportunity to, to draft, uh, either Jared Goff or Carson Wentz. And then they said no to both of those players. And then they looked, both of them looked good in their early seasons and their GM, Sashi Brown ended up getting fired later after this and people were citing this as a as an example of how he did a bad job and then both of those players have now been dropped by their current teams and are, uh, they turned out to after a few years not be good so anyway it's all it's really difficult to figure out you know uh uh figure out how these are going to do that said i'm sure you get some insights from from trying it but i i've never tried it just because um, most of the leagues i play in, you only have to have one quarterback and uh, it's just pretty easy to get a quarterback late in the draft and and do okay yeah, I'm, I'm I'm a Jets fan, so I would say whatever type of, whatever works in models, they're probably not using them. Right. Um, based on the based on the results we've seen so far. Yes. Um, I'm wondering how does this work in fantasy football? So I assume you're going against some people who are picking people themselves, and then you're mm -hmm. using some models. And does this typically work better than a human being can you know select the players for your team? Uh, yeah, I think it does. I mean, at least my own experience has been that it that it does. Um, I think you know. It's actually a great example of sort of it's not behavioral finance, but behavioral you know science applied to uh, to fantasy football. You see some just things that would that seem totally crazy uh, in human behavior. Um, so there are a bunch of people who play in these leagues, you know, who watch a lot of college football, and they come up with their own opinions about players um, from all the college football that they watch, right? Which is kind of why people get into these kinds of leagues where you're drafting college players. Um, uh, and, uh, but the, let me just describe what, what happens. People will often form their opinions. And then we have the NFL draft where you find out the team's opinions about these players. And so all of my models are post draft. I, my, the most important input is what did the team think, you know, of this player? That's the most predictive 
thing for me. And so I lean heavily on, on draft position, you know, how early were they drafted? And, um, and I should say, it's also an example of some, you know, reflexivity because when teams take a player really early, when they pay a high price for a player, they then typically, it appears, give that player more chances because they don't want to look like idiots. So you have this feedback from the high price that actually makes them more likely to actually achieve their price. In any case, um, people who don't, who, who make their who, uh, rankings pre-draft, they typically update very poorly to the draft information. In fact, in some ways, they do it in ways that are obviously irrational. So one thing that will happen is if, they, if their favorite player is a certain player and that player falls on the draft, they will double down on being right to the extent that they will increase their belief in that player even more. So the NFL just said, we don't like them. The only bit of data we just got added says, we think it's less likely you're right. And they'll respond by upping their belief in it. And so this is just taking candy from a baby when that happens. So, um, so it's, yeah, it works really well to be sort of, uh, I think, model driven and objective. And I typically like just close my eyes to these college players until the draft data comes out because I don't want myself to fall into that behavioral trap. It's interesting. We're seeing basically the same exact problems, you know, in fantasy football, behavioral problems that we're seeing in investing. Um, you know, pretty much anything, anything that involves human beings, yeah, I guess you see, you see the same problems. Yeah, humans are humans. <laughs> Just one more question before we move away from football um, is, do you know if, do NFL teams actually use this kind of stuff um, when they're deciding like to draft players? Do they use these, this sort of machine learning tactics? Um, so they do use a lot of data. I, I, I've never worked for an NFL team, so I don't know. But I mean, certainly the whispers you get from the inside um, are that, you know, they use more and more of this. Um, so I would be, uh, I, you know, it wouldn't shock me to learn that, you know, NFL teams are, are pretty heavily on this, but I, again, you have all the same issues. There's, you know, I'm sure you both have seen Moneyball and sort of this clash of cultures that happens between the scouts and the, and the models. So how do you set up a culture where both, both things are taken, you know, um, taken seriously is a difficult problem. Um, but, you know, I know lots of people who have machine learning knowledge work for NFL teams now, so I don't know to the extent to which their, um, their inputs are being listened to, but uh, I'm pretty sure the teams have this, at least some amount of this information. You had a really interesting way you applied this to investing in the paper, you, with the clustering, and you talked about, you had basically created four different modules or, or four different, uh, you know, groupings. And, and you said, basically, you built it on the principle that a better company deserves to be more expensive. And so you took profitability and you took ROE, and you basically made quadrants. So you had high profitability, high ROE companies, and then you had low profitability, low ROE companies, and then the opposites. And you know, you showed basically that you may want to use different valuation levels for stocks that are really good companies versus ones that are bad companies. Um, and, I, and I want to ask you one particular thing off of that paper that I think gets back to this idea of clusters and, and the movement between them. Because one of the things I had trouble understanding is, you know, you talked about in the paper about what happens when a company that's sort of in the really good cluster moves to the, you know, where they have this criteria is being applied to them, then they move to a different cluster and we have to apply another criteria. So I was wondering if you could just talk in general about how you handle those types of situations where you maybe have clustered things into, into different clusters, but then you get movement inside of the clusters and you just have to decide how to evaluate that. Yeah. So typically what would happen is, you know, you, you basically take this group of models and it's now together a new, a new, uh, um, you know, program for producing predictions. So what you're going to do is you're going to give it an example. It's going to look at which cluster is it closest to, which cluster is it in, and then it's going to use that model's cluster to make a prediction. Uh, sorry, the, the, the model for that cluster. So if you take a, a company in one month and it's in one cluster, it's going to get that cluster's model. If the next month 
it's in a different cluster, it's just going to get, it's going to use the other model. And so I think I remember some examples from this paper where Amazon was in like a really bad cluster for a long time. And then suddenly, you know, their, um, you know, gross profitability or whatever shot up and they switched clusters and suddenly the model wants to give them a higher multiple, <laughs> you know, right away. Uh, and that would have been a smart thing to do at the time, <laughs> although this is obviously not built back then. But um, but yeah, so it's it's going to respond to a change in cluster by just switching to the new the new model for that cluster right away. So if you fall out of the top group, if you're going to get downrated, and it's going to sell immediately. One of the I guess criticisms or critiques of machine learning when it comes to investing is there's really just not enough data um, out there to be applied. So I wanted to read you this quote. Um, from research affiliates and just get your reaction to it. So it's, they wrote, today we have about 55 years of high quality equity data or less than 700 monthly observations for many of the metrics in each of the stocks we may wish to consider. This tiny sample is far too small for most machine learning applications and impossibly small for advanced approaches such as deep learning. So do you think that machine learning can be sort of effective on a data set of with this type of quantity or what are your just general thoughts? Yeah. So, I, I mean, I guess I'd say I, I strongly disagree with this, except for maybe the last comment about deep learning. That might be, I might agree with that. Yeah, that might be accurate. Um, although we, I guess we can chat about that later. Um, so, you know, um, if you have 50 years of data and 2000 stocks, that's a hundred thousand examples. Um, so maybe you split it in half for te train test. So you have 50,000. Uh, so I'd say as a practical matter, um, tens of thousands is a great size for machine learning. So I don't, I don't know where they're coming from saying that that's not enough, enough data. I mean, I gave you an example before I train models on running backs where I only have hundreds. So, so, uh, uh, tens of thousands in a certain sense, tens of thousands is, uh, almost an ideal setting for machine learning. For one thing, you can run it all on one machine. Uh, when you get, you know, billions and or trillions of examples, you have to the computational task to train the model gets really complicated. You got to run, you know, a big, uh, a big, uh, you know, set, you know, uh, room full of machines to train it. And that doesn't happen when it's tens of thousands and you can run more complicated models. Some of the models are more computationally intensive. So something like a support vector machine is really hard to learn. And you can't, um, probably, you know, at least on a laptop, you know, you can't train it with more than tens of thousands of examples. So tens of thousands is kind of a sweet spot. I, actually, I would say even with deep learning models, the way that they train them in practice is they will, you know, choose maybe a hundred thousand examples at random, train on those examples for a while until they're not getting progress and then pick another set at random. And the reason being just the one we discussed that on an individual machine, a hundred, you know, tens to hundred thousand is kind of a, is a really nice size. So, um, so I, as a practical matter, I don't know what you're talking about saying that this isn't enough data. This is, this is quite a good amount of data, but, um, I guess the you know my reaction to it, um, I, I sort of yeah I have a strong negative reaction to it because it just sort of feels uh, philosophically like a poor argument to me. Um, I, let me make it. I guess what it reminds me of. So you know my PhD thesis was in um, quantum computation, and um, ten years ago there were a lot of quantum computing skeptics still around. You know people who wanted to argue that we couldn't build quantum computers, and so there was this famous debate between um, Aram Harrow, who's a prominent, accomplished uh, uh, quantum computing researcher, and uh, Gil Kalai, who was a quantum computing skeptic. And, um, and Aram's first argument in this debate was that, um, you know, if you're going to come out and say that quantum computers can't work, you have to give 
and you're going to try to give some plausible physics where you think that that, that was going to rule out, you know, you, you think this is physics is going to be like this, and so therefore quantum computers don't work. You can't just do that. You can't just say these physics were going to disallow quantum computers. You have to find physics that will disallow quantum computers, but still allow regular computers, because we know those exist. And so a lot of the arguments people have been giving were things like, well, there's going to be too much noise, or the errors are going to be correlated in a way that makes uh, it impossible to fix them. And those things would, would make regular computers not work. And again, we have them, so that doesn't work. So um, my complaint is kind of the same about this one. If you're trying to be a machine learning skeptic, you need to find an argument that makes machine learning impossible, but human learning still possible. And it doesn't feel to me like lack of data is such a thing. If we have very little data, none of us can learn, right? Human beings can't learn. You know, if we only have 10 examples, like we're trying to learn from, you know, past recessions, there's just so few examples nobody can learn, uh, let alone the, the machines. Um, so that's, um, you know, another thing that people will sometimes give as an example of why machine learning can't work is they'll say, well, uh, markets are not stationary. They change over time, and so the future may not be like the past. But again, if the future is not like the past, we're all out of luck, right? It's not just the machines. I mean, you know, what do you, you don't need the guy or gal with 30 years of experience if the future is not going to be like the past. So you need better arguments, I think, um, and that's kind of my reaction to it. You need something that separates. Um, and so um, I can tell you what I think it is that separates, you know, where machine learning becomes valuable versus humans, but it's not, it's not size. I mean, I, I use machine learning on tiny, tiny data sets, hundreds of running backs, and it works great. Um, and you can use it, famously, you can use deep learning models. The place where they shine is when you have enormous amounts of data. So I'm not aware of anywhere on the spectrum of size of data where you can separate machine learning from human learning. At least that's been my experience. One of the things that people always say about investing factors is that they have to be intuitive. So they have to make sense. And I'm wondering when, when you're building machine learning models, does that come into play at all? So if I'm, you know, if I'm looking at some variables and I'm trying to look at if it predicts stock returns or, you know, whatever I'm looking at, where does it come into play? You know, does this make sense to a person? And I, and I don't even know, should that even matter? You know, what, I, there was an interesting quote by Robert Mercer recently in, a, in an article, and he said that the signals that we've been trading without interruption for 15 years make absolutely no sense. Otherwise, someone else would have found them. And so, you know, they're sort of arguing that this intuitive step isn't even necessary, but I'm wondering just sort of how that comes into the process of, you know, machine learning. Yeah, so I, I'm certainly, just as an investor in the, in the, in the Robert Mercer camp, <laughs> Uh, I, I like the uh, I like the models that uh, that don't make any sense. Um, and I start to get worried when people start finding explanations for them because then I get worried that they're going to go away. Um, uh, so, um, I, I, as far as I'm aware, I haven't seen any examples where applying a human filter of does this make sense improves predictions. Um, I've never seen a case where, you know. In fact, I've seen really the opposite, right? So it, this is uh, in fact my best example would be a finance example. If you look at you know, if you look at uh, uh, Greenblatt's um, magic formula, right? So think of that as a very simple model that predicts which stocks are going to outperform, right? He did this experiment famously and had human beings pick from his list and they made it much worse. So, um, so I don't know. I've never seen cases where we're filtering by letting a human filter. Oh, I should come back to that. I, I think there is something there, but I haven't seen any documented cases of where adding a does this make sense filter actually helps. Um, but that said, you know, I think, um, you know, we have to keep in mind here, uh, that there's more going on than just getting the best out of sample performance, right? You know, uh, 
you know, the famous, um, I'm sure you guys have read the famous paper, um, Limits to Arbitrage. Uh, um, I forget the authors of that uh, off the top of my head, but, you know, they make the point there that ultimately you can have the smartest fund in the world, but that fund has clients and those clients, you know, uh, have behavioral issues like any human beings and they may not stick with a, stick with a plan, even if it's the perfect, the perfect, uh, you know, uh, strategy to use. So it may be that making filtering to things that make sense is really helpful for getting clients to stick with a strategy. And I would absolutely believe that matters. Or it may, may be that finding a strategy that makes sense, you know, people are only interested in investing in strategies that make sense. Uh, but, um, but as far as the ability to improve predictions, I've, I've never seen, I've never seen that actually add, add anything. In fact, in my, like, like Robert Mercer, I would probably go the other way. If, if it makes too much sense, I become deeply suspicious. Uh, just before we wrap up, um, I want to ask you, I mean, what do you, and we kind of talked about, you know, the, the true out of sample is, um, you know, what's in the future, right? And so predicting the future is obviously um, impossible, difficult, and, you know, no one really knows. But what we want to ask, you know, what do you think the future of, I guess, machine learning looks like? And do you think that machine learning ultimately will crowd out human investors or that there will, you know, be room here for individual human investors, decision makers to actually be in the market or just generally what, what do you have any feelings or thoughts on that? Yeah. I mean, I certainly, I, I can't predict the future either, but, um, but my, I mean, I think the safe bet is that, uh, we're going to see a mix of humans and machines for the foreseeable future. That seems, that seems like a safe bet. Um, you know, I think it's clear from everything else, all the other problems we've tried machine learning on that, um, including machine learning in, in the, in the tool bag, improves, you know, uh, allows us to improve performance. And that should be true in finance as well. Um, I, I have no reason to think to think otherwise. Um, I haven't seen any cases where we've just gone all computers, taken out all the humans, um, and, and everything's been great, unless it's been a problem where, you know, the problem is never going to change, nothing's ever going to change, uh, and it's just 100% repeatable forever. Um, even if you look at, you know, all these examples, um, uh, you know, you, you read a paper and it'll say, or a headline in a in a, a newspaper and it'll say, "Machines, you know, taught itself. Machine teaches itself to play an Atari game," and uh, that always seems like you know, uh, it's sensationalist. I mean, it gets clicks, right? But they seem to forget that there were twelve PhDs working on this for three years. I mean, what were those people doing? You know, they want. I know people want to make it think that like you just stick your computer out in the rain, it gets hit by lightning, and then suddenly it works, but that's, that's not how it works. I mean, there are human beings working on this and it's really hard. And every time you try machine learning, the first thing you try on, it doesn't work at all. And you got a, a human being has to look at it and figure out what's going on, you know, and, and there's, there's always, there's always cases where you need the general intelligence of a human being to figure out, you know, what to do, you know, um, I'll give you a couple examples off the top of my head. I've used machine learning once and I got these unbelievably good results. So good that I, I knew they couldn't be right. Right. It's like I'm getting, you know, 20% alpha a year. And uh, I'm like, okay, that's not right. I couldn't find it. And I couldn't find it. But I knew it wasn't right. Um, just as a human being, right? I know that's too good to be true. And so eventually I, um, with the help of uh, Jesse Livermore, you guys may know on, on Twitter, we eventually tracked it down and figured out what was going on. Um, and it was that there was uh, the split adjustments that were happening in the data. The machine had found that a couple of them it had found that by comparing one thing that was split adjusted 
to something that was not dividing them, it could find out how many times the stock was split in the future. And it grappled onto that because it's got so much signal. I mean, stock's going to split a hundred times. There's only one reason why that's going to happen, right? It's, price is going to go up a lot. And so it had found that it was in there and it had used that to, uh, and it was, it wasn't easy to see from the model because um, it was really hidden in there. So it took a bunch of digging by the two of us to figure out what was going on and fix this and then figure out how to take it out. Um, you know, that's one example. Um, you know, another one that comes up is a lot of times you're doing machine learning and it's it usually, like I said, keep, your mental process should be that it's not going to work great the first time you try it. So then the, that's why that's what those, that's what those 12 PhDs were doing for three years. The first, you know, two years and nine months, it was terrible. And they were trying to fig figure out why it wasn't working, coming up with ideas about how to fix it, you know, and, and you, you know, you're doing things like looking at the mistakes it's making and using your general intelligence to say, why isn't it seeing, why is it getting this case wrong? And you think, okay, maybe the reason it's not getting this case right is that we haven't told it about this information. Maybe we should add that in. So you try adding that, or you'll try changing the way that it's building the model, things like that. So all, it's always been all these examples we have of successes of machine learning, despite how much everyone wants to pretend like it's not happening. It's always human beings plus the machine. It's a bunch of smart people working really hard, trying to get the machine to, to come up with the answers. And then when it's done, we pretend like the human beings weren't there. Um, and, and because everybody likes that version of the story a lot better. I'm so super excited that we've had you on because I think this has turned out to be a great discussion. And I think anyone interested in machine learning, you know, without going too, too deep is going to learn um, a lot here. So we're certainly very appreciative of you spending the time with us and um, helping our viewers and listeners um, understand some of these concepts. Any way we can get a sneak peek of the, uh, of the third uh, installment of the research partner program, or is that locked? Is that locked in the safe somewhere? <laughs> no, I, I, no, I'll tell you about it. Um, so I'm, I'm going to write about, I've been planning for a long time to write on this same thing, which is I'm going to write about the actual models that I use to pick running backs and wide receivers. Uh, and I use um, something, uh, it doesn't have a catchy name. I'll have to come up with one, but I tend to use a, a model, uh, use a machine learning technique called uh, L1 regularized logistic regression. Um, if you, there's something related to it called lasso re regression. If you look up, look up lasso regression, you'll see, um, uh, that. So I'm going to write about that. Um, and it's a little more complicated than the ones I've done so far, but what I've been searching for is finding the right, um, finding the right finance examples to use. So as I said, it's, you know, usually when I go and work on a problem, I'm going to try every machine learning method until I find the one that works best. But here, because I have a, I'm writing a paper about a method. I have to go problem to problem to problem until I find the problem it works on. So that's kind of where I've been. I've been trying to find a good example. You know, it has, can't be too complicated. It has to, you know, so anyway, I, I've been fiddling around in that. So I'm not sure when I'm going to find the perfect example. I have one, but I think I'm going to do two. So it'll, the paper will come out then, but that's what it's going to be about. This, this last technique, um, the technique I actually used, and it's a great one because you can use it when there's very little data, like these running back cases. And um, it does a really good job of sort of highlighting to you the, the most important things to focus on. So it can give you a lot of insights, even if you don't end up using it as your final model, even if you switch to deep learning, um, it can teach you a lot about what's going on in the data. And, and, and so uh, it's my, that's the, those are the reasons why it's my favorite, and that's why I wanted to get, teach it uh, in the next piece. I'm gonna lobby for the KZ, the KZ <laughs> model. <laughs> so, well, listen, Kevin, thank you very much for uh, joining us. We really appreciate it. And um, if people want to learn more about 
some of the research you're working on. I know you're pretty active on Twitter. I mean, where can they kind of go to follow you and find out more? Yeah, I'm uh, at Casey's at on, on Twitter. Um, I'm pretty much tweeting all the time about stocks there for the reasons we discussed before. I don't have anything to talk about with my with fantasy football because my models are just working. So there's nothing interesting new going on. Just turn the machine on once a year. And um, so, yeah, uh, I'm talking about finance all the time there. And um, and so, yeah, happy to chat with anybody about, uh, about any of these topics. Uh, Twitter's definitely the best place. Great. Well, thanks for joining us. We appreciate it. Thank you, Kevin. Yeah, thanks again. Hi guys, this is Justin again. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of Excess Returns. You can follow Jack on Twitter at, at @practicalquant and follow me on Twitter at, at JJ Carboneau. If you found this discussion interesting and valuable, please subscribe in either iTunes or on YouTube or leave a review or a comment. We appreciate it.